Luke chapter 7, uh, and we, we're going to be actually in three sections there. We did, we read uh, the scripture here this morning from the first section, uh, verses 11 to 17, uh, and, uh, but I would like to read from chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, because this get, really gives us the setting of the situation here. And I'll, I'll comment upon that here in just a second, but in Luke chapter 8. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming the good news and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So we're assuming that the three ladies that are named here were uh, recipients and beneficiaries of, of his grace in healing. And we know the first one, Mary, uh, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons were had gone out. Wow. And then Joanna, and here's a great contrast, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, probably was healed. We don't know what she was healed of and when that occurred. And then Susanna, who, of whom nothing is mentioned, and here again we assume that she was also a recipient of God's or Christ's healing mercies, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Think about that for a minute. Jesus and his entourage, which was very large, going to these small villages. What were they going? How were they going to be taken care of? Well, we know right here that these women, many, many women traveling with them, provided for them out of their means. Interesting. So let's get into this. In this final Sunday morning message of 2023, we return to Luke's gospel, and in the last message, we examined the first seven verses of chapter 7, the healing of the centurion servant. That would be verses 1 through 10. And this story centers on a proselyte of the gate, a military man in the employ of Herod's army, a God-fearer who recognized the God of Israel to be the true God. And he was a Gentile and of great faith. So Luke here wanted his readers to understand that Jesus' compassion for Gentiles, and particularly God-fearers. And then the second account and the, that we're going to deal with today is followed here by a heart-wrenching story of a widow taking her only son to the cemetery with a large crowd of neighbors from the town of Nain. That's verses 11 to 17. This woman was a, a woman of great despair on whom Jesus had amazing compassion. And Luke wants his readers here to understand that Jesus 
has compassion for women in despair. The third story that's given to us in verses 18 through 35 is about a man of some doubt, John the Baptist. We're going to look at it later next week. John the Baptist here was languishing in the prison fortress of Macarius, which was Herod's prison, waiting for his execution. What was his crime? He confronted the tetrarch, Herod Antipas, that his marriage to Herodias was not lawful. There in, according to Mark chapter 6, verse 18, she was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, therefore she would have been the niece of Antipas and his half-brother Philip. Antipas had persuaded Herodias, the woman, that's the woman's name, to abandon her marriage to his half-brother Philip and to marry him. She agreed on the condition that he put away his current wife, who was the daughter of Aretas, the, the king of Arabia. The outcome of that situation was that Aretas went to war with Antipas, and he Antipas was defeated and never fully recovered. And it cost John the Baptist his life. This imprisoned messianic forerunner here. here and here's the issue, here's the gist of this story is that upon hearing the reports of Jesus' ministry, particularly the fact that he was proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, there according to chapter 8, verse 1, and then that caused him to have some questions. If Jesus was truly the Messiah, where was his kingdom that he was announcing to everyone? Why was John still in prison and facing death? So he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask whether Jesus was truly the Messiah or should they look for another? And Jesus received them, graciously responded to them, and pointed to the fact that, that prophecies of the Old Testament were being fulfilled in his ministry. Luke wants his readers to understand that Jesus' compassion has compassion even for God's suffering servants. In the fourth narrative, dealing with a woman of great gratitude, which is found in verses 36 to 50, she had been a great sinner who found grace and forgiveness. And uh, she expressed her thanksgiving in a lavish and humbling, loving worship of her Savior. This occurred in the home of a very judgmental Pharisee. And Luke wants his readers to understand that Jesus' compassion for women and freeing them from the bondage of sinful abuse. So then we have chapter 8, which opens with a kind of summary showing how women include, were... Uh, uh, benefited by Jesus were then included in his ministry and became a very valuable asset. I believe the first three verses actually belong to the closing of chapter 7 and form a summary. These verses deal with the elevation of women in Jesus' kingdom. 
I saw Rosaria Butterfield had had a lecture. I'd lay, I'm gonna, I'm interested to listen to her lecture on how real women's liberation has occurred, in, not in the world, but in the church, in Christianity through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really what it's telling us right here. So Jesus wants us to understand that, uh, or Paul, uh, excuse me, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus' compassion for women resulted in their generous support of His ministry. So in this message, we want to briefly look at two of these accounts of women in chapter 7. And thus the title of the message, Compassion for Women. And then in conclusion, I would like to note there the, the varied circumstances there and that characterize the lives of, the, of some of those women who did follow Christ according and, and were included in His kingdom. So first of all, note here, a broken woman's happy restoration. A woman's, a broken woman's happy restoration. You need to understand what was going on here. And Luke sets the stage for this account. This is verses 11 to 17. Luke sets uh, the stage for this account by explaining how he came to Nain. Uh, Nain and is a long way from Capernaum, where he healed the centurion's servant. But we learn that uh, fully in verse in chapter eight, verse one. But uh, it's, it's briefly stated here in verse eleven. But in uh, chapter eight, verse one, he was going through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Nain was a town that was located southwest of Capernaum about 12 miles. And in those days, that's a long way. This is the only mention of this town in Scripture. And he came to this place as he was traveling in ministry. Soon after leaving Capernaum, where he then, where he, as I said, he healed the centurion servant. And as Jesus and his disciples were approaching the town, they encountered a funeral procession. Now, in these times, funerals consisted of a shrouded body being carried, usually on a bier or a, or a, in some means, either on the shoulders or elsewhere or otherwise, carried on a litter to a, to the graveyard, and that you the funeral usually occurred the day that the person passed away. In this case, the body was should have been followed by professional mourners. Depending on your means, poor people had to have at least two flute players and one mourner to accompany the body to to the to uh, the the burial, and that would be from the time of preparation all the way to the finished. Uh, Closing of the cat, uh, uh, closing of the uh, of the tomb. However, in this case, she was supported by a large number of people from the town itself. This great support 
could not relieve, however, the grim circumstances that this in this in which this woman found herself. She's a widow. Not only that, but she she is now bearing her only remaining means of support, her only son. And this has left her in a situation of destitution. It's a very sad case. The great host of sympathizers that might have supported her in her grief, they might have supported her in her grief, but they could not possibly restore the dignity and hope for her future. Just think about that. She, she has no means of support for her present life, and she has no hope of the future. No children, no grandchildren, nothing. Very desperate circumstance. Very similar to the situation that we read about in the book of Ruth. There were Naomi suffered a twofold tragedy. She lost her husband and she lost her sons, both taken from her, which left her virtually alone and that in a foreign country, Moab. Although her daughter-in-law, Ruth, accompanied her, Ruth was actually in the same boat. Her husband was dead. Both were women, widows, and deprived of support. So when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, what does she do? She asks that they change her name. Don't call me uh, Naomi, but call me Mara, which means bitter. Indeed, her circumstances were bitter. But here again, God is merciful. He's gracious and kind. And what did he do? Ruth's out there trying to support them both, and God brings into her life a kinsman redeemer, a member of the family, who could relieve her circumstances, who married Ruth and became, so that Ruth now becomes the great-grandmother of King David and of the Messiah himself. What a story. When in this case, Jesus Christ steps in again because of the providence of a mighty sovereign God. Jesus now enters the picture and as, there, as this funeral is leaving the city of Nain to go to the burial place, Jesus steps up. We should know a couple of things here too. First of all, Jewish funerals did not accompany, uh, did not uh, uh, employ caskets. They didn't use caskets, just burial cloths, as did the Egyptians. The Egyptians were notorious for their, for their sarcophagus. Neither did they cremate their dead, as did the Greeks. They also did not bury their dead in the ground. Dig a, dig a hole and bury them. They believed they put them in sepulchers because they believed that the dead would eventually be raised on the last day. And that hope that was found there in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. 
So the body was simply anointed with spices, wrapped in a grave cloth, and carried to the cemetery to be sealed in the family's burial chamber or sepulcher. But here, when the Lord saw her, he immediately acted, commanding her first to stop weeping. Yeah, all right, the, the, the scripture here that we read uh, says, doesn't say stop weeping, but that's, the, that's what it was. It was a command. Stop weeping. A present active imperative. A command. But he was not being rude to do this. And the woman did not respond with shocked surprise at this order. What Jesus commands, he always enables the grace to do. So she stopped weeping. And in one moment, he steps forward, puts his hand on the beer, says to the grieving woman, stop weeping, then turns to the dead son, young man, I say to you, arise. Verse 14. Instantly, the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave her, gave him to his mother. Wow, what a gift. Think about that. What would you have, how would you have reacted there on that day? The scripture tells us the response of this crowd, and I think here too, it was the, it was the sovereignty of Almighty God that brought this crowd out of the city to see this. And their response was great fear. Yeah. Then we read, they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. A great prophet has arisen among us. They, these, they're schooled in the scriptures. They know that uh, Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 to 24, had raised a woman's son from the dead. And also later, his follower, Elisha, in 2 Kings chapter 4, 32 to 40, uh, 37, had also raised a son from the dead. And nobody since had done anything like that. This is the first recorded incidence of Christ raising someone from the dead in the book of Luke. However, I would uh, argue that Matthew in chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, also records Jesus raising the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. And we know that this had to have taken place earlier as Jesus had not yet completed his call and commissioning of the twelve. But this miracle also played, I think, an important role in Jesus' response to John's disciples later. Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended in me. Verses 22 and 23. This brings us to the second. A forgiven woman grateful, a forgiven woman's grateful expression of love for her Savior. In the next incident, 
We read here one of the, and this is verses 36 through 50, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. This is interesting. We don't know where this, exactly what town this was, but there's a Pharisee in that town who invited Jesus to come and to eat with him. Verse 36. And the style of this comment, I think, obviously connects with the previous verses, verses 31 to 35, in which Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? And he's comparing his ministry with that of John the Baptist. He says they're like ch children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a devil, a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, to, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet Jesus said, wisdom is justified of all her children. So what do we read next? A Pharisee asked him to dinner. <laughs> I don't know, we don't know the motive. Maybe he said. Maybe he heard that and said, "Well, I'm, I'll I'll show him." <laughs> Whatever. Luke does not explain the purpose of this invitation, as it was not relevant. Luke was merely setting the stage for a woman's response to being forgiven, and to contrast that with this Pharisee's forgiveness. You see, he was forgiven? Listen. Listen on. For whatever reason, this Pharisee slighted Jesus by failing to provide expected amenities as he welcomed his guests into his home. Now, Jesus accepted the invitation fully aware of this Pharisee's heart. And without question, the whole incident presented to this Pharisee an opportunity to see in Jesus the only hope for his own soul's spiritual welfare. What would this Pharisee do with Jesus? We know what this woman did. What would the Pharisee do? We're not told, and we'll only we'll have to wait to glory to find out. Somehow, this this woman here is described as a sinner. She had had to have some knowledge of Jesus, because she came seeking him out. We're not told if he had any contact with her on a previous occasion. But she heard that Jesus was eating at this Pharisee's house and came in bringing an alabaster vial. And this was common for women in those days to, to have a little alabaster vial on her, that she would wear around her neck. It was a costly perfumed oil. So as Jesus was reclining at the table, and here's another thing that, that, uh, that you need to understand often, uh, in, in particularly in formal dining situations, the guests were arranged around a very low table or maybe even eaten, eating off the cloth laid on the floor. 
kind of sitting on their elbows, stretched out, lying down with their feet extended out. Well, this woman comes in and she stood behind the Lord Jesus and then knelt at his feet and began to weep profusely. Unlike the weeping of the widow above, this woman's tears were expressions of deep and overwhelming gratitude for forgiveness. But here's the question. When was she forgiven? We're never told here that Jesus actually at one time had forgiven her. It's my, I think it's my understanding in reading and, and praying over this, this passage that this woman heard about Jesus, knew what Jesus' message was, believed Jesus' message, claimed it for her own, and then went to Jesus to worship Him and thank Him for forgiving her on the basis of what He professed that He would do to all who came to Him by faith. And He did. Because He said to her, Woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So she kneels behind him, tears flowing down onto his feet, wiping them with her, the hairs of her head, kissing them, then anointing them with per the perfume that she carried in. And she did this repeatedly. It was not Uncommon for people to come in and observe festivities at a large dinner parties, especially those that were held by people of social status. They just merely would come in and line the walls of the uh, dining area to watch the proceedings. But for a woman, particularly one of a sordid reputation, to come into a party off the street, uninvited and unannounced, to the home of a particularly of a Pharisee was unthinkable. Despite, despite this situation, she was desperate to get close to Jesus. And this provided her the opportunity. So she just ignores all the protocol. And another thing, it was considered very disgraceful for a woman to let down her hair in public, which she did in order to wipe Jesus' feet with the hairs of her head. She cared nothing about appearances, and in her extravagant display of affection and love for Jesus Christ, she just did it. I think three things here need to be said to correct, I think, some commentaries on the incident. First of all, as taught by Roman Catholic exegetes and some early Protestant commentators, this woman is not Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast seven devils, as we read there in 8.2. Second, this incident occurred early in Jesus' ministry and should not be confused with one involving Mary the sister of Lazarus at Bethany of Judah. 
She also anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You recall the response there, particularly of, Ju of, of uh, Judas, who said, why wasn't this sold for so many years' salary and, and that given to the poor? And John, in his uh, comment, says he didn't do this because uh, he was concerned for the poor, but because he was a thief and kept the bag. And so this incident led to his betrayal of Jesus. But the incidents before us, this incident before us occurs much earlier and in Galilee. Third, although one might conclude that this woman was a prostitute, and, and I read that constantly, there's not one word in this passage to suggest she was. We don't know the nature of her sin. We just assume it. The Pharisee, and, and here, here I'm, I would argue that we've got to be very careful not to think of a person as being worse than the evidence compels us to. The Pharisee did recognize the woman. How did he recognize her? How did he know her? Well, of course, it may have been a small town. But he said to himself, he did not say to anything else or anybody else. He said to himself, as they're dining, if this man, Jesus, were really a prophet, as he claimed to be, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. What kind of sinner? We, he does not say. Verse 39 there. So what does it mean? She was a sinner. Nowhere, as I said, is she called a prostitute. That conclusion is assumed. And did the Pharisee actually evidence the nature of her sin? Did he have actual evidence of it? Or did he simply judge her based on rumor and gossip? God hates that. Her being referred to as a great sinner need mean no more than that she committed a grievous sin, her fall becoming public, and her damaged reputation now following her forever. Jesus knew this Pharisee's thoughts. He's God. <laughs> so he turns to, the, to this Pharisee, calling him by name, and giving a brief parable about two men indebted to a moneylender, one owing 500 denarii. You know how much 500 denarii is in American bucks? Probably more now in Bidenomic bucks, but <laughs> $85. He couldn't pay it. He was forgiven of his debt. The other fellow, 50 very small compared to $500, $8.50, and he couldn't pay it. So they were both graciously forgiven. Their debt canceled. So Jesus then asks Simon, which of these will love him more? The two debtors. 
and same and probably cleared his throat. <clears throat> I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus then said to him, you, you, you got that right. <laughs> you judged rightly. So then Jesus turns to the woman and still speaking to Simon to indicate that this woman was one of the debtors in his parable. I'm going to apply this little parable now. You see that woman? She's one of the debtors. She's the one who owes the most. And to his astonishment, Simon, by implication, had to be the other. Listen to Jesus' words. Jesus was the lender and had forgiven them both. While Simon's debt was insignificant, just a mere failure of common and expected politeness. He slighted his guest here by failing to provide a welcoming kiss, anointing oil, and the means for washing his feet. This was accorded to every guest that a man invited into his home. The woman here, on the other hand, provided what the Pharisee did not see. She poured upon Jesus lavish and sacrificial devotion. Her sins, as presumed many, were forgiven. And, as, and I ask, when and how? I believe that very day. As her devotion on Jesus Christ indicated the faith in her heart in the Lord Jesus Christ to receive the forgiveness that, that the Savior had promised to those who came to him by faith. You see that? And her being forgiven then caused her to show great love to her Savior. But to Simon... His negligence, for whatever reason, was also forgiven. He showed, and he, on the other hand, showed little or no love to the Savior. But I want, I want you to get this here, because this is very important. Please note that it was not the love shown to Jesus by acts of devotion that prompted forgiveness. If that were the case, Jesus would have said to Simon, I'm not forgiving you of anything because you showed no love to me upon my entering your house. However, because this woman has loved me with great sacrifice of her dignity and costly ointment, I will dismiss her sin debt accordingly. No. Not at all. That's not how it works. But Jesus did send her away with, with gracious assurance. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. No, it was God who gave her the faith to believe and the courage to come and fall at Jesus' feet and express her faith in gratitude for for his forgiveness of her. Now she was assured of it. 
by Jesus' own words. And she went out of there with peace in her heart. Wow. Is that you? Can that describe you? Now let me just close this quickly by touching on the three verses that we saw there in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. I read those earlier. These, these summary verses here reveal a startling fact. Many women accompanied Jesus and the disciples on his ministry tours of the cities and villages in Israel. Can you imagine? They came into a city, began ministering. Well, who's going to take care of them? How are they going? Now, when they went out two by two, Jesus told them, go find a house, because this, this was customary in that day. That if you were a traveler, you'd go to the city square and citizen, uh, some citizen of the town would see you there and invite you to his house to stay. You see many examples of that in scripture. But a large entourage like this of Jesus and his 12 disciples, that'd be 13 men right there and we don't know how many other men also were accompanying him. And then we have a great many women. It says that right there clearly. A great many women. Who would put them up? Who would feed them? How would they be cared for? We often don't think about that when we read these passages. But here's a problem. We, and we find the solution here. Not only did they accompany Jesus, but they also financially supported him. That is a revelation. It wasn't the men supporting him. It was the women. Out of their means. Which means their own purse, their pocketbook. Because there was a treasury. We know that. As I mentioned earlier, Judas was the keeper of it. There, according to, to John 12, verse 6. And the, no doubt the expenses of this traveling troop were considerable. But why did these women support it? Why did they follow Jesus? Because that is what Jesus expects of those whom he saves. Follow me. And they gave up their lives to follow him. Notice, three of these women are named. We don't know anything about the last lady, Susanna. Nothing is said about her here. and We don't know of anything else in Scripture. But two of them are. And I believe Luke gives them here to show a contrast of a miserable woman out of whom Jesus cast seven devils. Her being demon-possessed suggests a life of being shunned by all around her. Because she was always acting crazy. It reminds you there of the situation of the demoniac there in Gadara. Who lived among the tombs. Nobody could constrain him. Nobody could control him. And nobody wanted to be around him. Until they saw him sane, clothed, and in his right mind. Beside Jesus. 
And then they wanted Jesus and the whole company to leave the country. Here's the same situation. And then and because of this, she's often depicted as, as prototypical of a fallen woman, even a prostitute, which the scriptures never say, never say. And after her encounter with Jesus, what did she do? She devoted her life to him and followed him everywhere until even unto his death. And here's an amazing, here's an amazing truth. She's the first person that Jesus reveals himself to after his resurrection. She mistook him as the gardener and said, Sir, if you just show me where you've laid his body, I'll take it away. And all Jesus had to do was say, Mary. And she fell at his feet and held them tight and wouldn't let them go. The second woman here shows here this contrast. This is a woman of society. This is a woman of high elevation in the culture. Her name is Joanna. She was the wife of Chusa, who held a position of considerable authority in the service of King Herod. We don't know exactly what, a steward of his household in some way or respect. She is mentioned one other time in the New Testament at the end of Luke's Gospel as one of the women who also accompanied the ladies who came to anoint the body of Jesus at the tomb and found it open and went back to report that they'd found an empty tomb. And though can't prove it for sure, but we also believe that she was the wife of the nobleman whose son was healed there in John chapter 4, verses 30, 43 to 54. We don't know exactly her situation, but what just assuming she was probably also herself healed of some disease or some situation. And what does she do with her life? She devotes it to Jesus and followed him. I mean, this is a woman of considerable wealth and status. But she's willing to follow Jesus around with a ex-demon-possessed lady, put her arm around her. They walk together. Forgiven. Believers. Saved. These women reveal the devotion and sacrifice of those whose lives have been changed forever by their encounter with Jesus Christ. So I would close with this. What about you? Has your encounter with Jesus changed your life radically? So that you now would are willing to give up everything, including your dignity, to follow Jesus everywhere and at all costs? Father, I thank you for these 
illustrations in Scripture. You read them and how they move your heart. These women who followed Jesus were forgiven. Whose lives were radically changed by their encounter with the Savior. Oh, that that may be also true of us. May we walk by faith. May we persevere. May we give our lives to you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. We honor you. We worship you. Amen.